The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. First king of Israel was a guy named Saul. He was the people's choice. Second king of Israel was a guy named David. He was God's choice. The next king of Israel was Solomon. He wasted the wisdom that God gave him. And as a result, God said, Solomon, when you pass away, the kingdom will be divided. Your son will become king and somebody else did, but the kingdom will be divided. And as we've been studying God's word, we're looking at prophets and kings, looking at the prophets who spoke into the lives of the kings. Say we're looking at a guy named Ahaz, and Ahaz was spoken to by Isaiah and Micah. And we're going to look at Micah speaking into Ahaz's life primarily. But the kingdom is divided after Solomon was king. And We've looked at this map a few times. I'll show it to you again. When the kingdom divided, this was all of Israel at one time, but the north became Israel. The capital was Samaria. The south became Judah, comprised of Benjamin and Judah, those two tribes, and its capital was Jerusalem. The other ten tribes formed Israel. They were mightier, more powerful, more populated. Uh, The southern tribes that we've been looking at, or southern kingdom we've been looking at for several weeks now, and as we've looked at it, we've seen that they've had some really bad kings. We looked at a guy named Ahab who was married to a wicked woman named Jezebel. We looked at a lady named Ataliah who murdered all of her grandkids so she could become queen. Last time I spoke two weeks ago, we looked at a guy named Joash who followed after God as long as his mentor was alive. And then last week, Stephen taught you the book of Amos or Amos, as he says, and uh, you looked at God's word together there. This morning we look at a king who many consider to be the ruler of the lowest point in Israel's history, especially their spiritual history. His name is Ahaz, Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. Father, we pray that your spirit would prick our hearts as we look at your word. You tell us it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, so we pray, Spirit of God, that you would pierce our hearts and cause us to be different as we walk out of this place this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. From bad to worse, these were all wicked kings. Ahab, Jezebel, Adaliah, Joash, on and on and on. But it didn't get any worse when Ahaz, when Ahaz's rule over Israel. You ever have days when things go from bad to worse? I mean, they start off pretty bad, but the day progresses and it gets even worse. Somebody say, man, I don't have days like that. I've got weeks like that, months like that. My life is like that. I mean, things have gone from bad to worse. I used a story back when we did a House of Cards series three or four summers ago. It's a story of one family whose day went from bad to worse. The the guy saying several years ago I returned home from a business trip. There was a storm that hit our community that night. With the crashing thunder and severe lightning, my four-year-old and six-year-old went to bed with my wife, went and slept in my wife's bed. As I came home about two in the morning, delayed because of all the weather, I I found my two children in bed with Carrie, and so uh, they were scared by the storm. I resigned myself to sleep in one of their rooms that night, but in the morning we had a little discussion, and I said, when Daddy's away on a trip and he's coming home, from now on you'll sleep in your own bed, even if it's thundering and lightning, the Lord will be with you. So after my next trip, several weeks later, my family came to get me in the neighbor at the airport. My plane arrived late, so they came down to the luggage area. When I was coming down the escalator, my four-year-old ran up screaming to me. He says, you ever notice how a four-year-old's voice stands out even in a crowd of hundreds of people? He said, my four-year-old came screaming at me. He said, daddy, daddy, I've got great news. I waved back to him and said, what's the great news, Elijah? He said, Daddy, nobody slept with Mommy when you were away this time. (laughs) 
that's a day that went from bad to worse real quickly. He said, I wanted to melt into the escalator. My wife, I looked for her in the crowd. I saw her beeline it out the back door so nobody would recognize who she was. That's how the nation of Israel was headed. They, they were headed from bad to worse. When Ahaz became king, he led the nation into a downward spiral that some would say was the most wicked time in the history of Israel's existence. King Ahaz. From bad to worse. What made him so wicked? Well, the first thing he was involved in was false worship. The gold standard that day was comparing kings to David, and obviously this king did not measure up. In verse 1 it says he did not measure up to the standard of David. He did not walk in the ways of his father David. In verse 2 it tells us why he walked in the ways of the other kings of Israel who made molten images for the Baals. He began to worship false gods. If you drop down to verse 4 it says he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So what we see in those verses is that he was a false worshiper that he probably worshipped Jehovah, but he added all these other gods to it. And so he, he was a king who had not a god, but who had many gods. He bowed his knee not just before the true God and the living God, but he bowed his knee before others, which means he really didn't trust the true God at all. I skipped verse 3 intentionally. If you've got an NIV, this is how it reads. You can look in front. I use a New American Standard. I wish I could change the NIV. I've memorized New American Standard for over 30 years, so it's hard to teach a very old dog new tricks. So uh, you're stuck with me quoting from scriptures that uh, you probably look at in other things. But in the NIV, it says in verse 3, He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire. Engaging in the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. One of the reasons this was a low water mark in Israel's history is because the king was involved in child sacrifices. Some way, somehow, this king did the despicable, the detestable, the unbelievable. He was involved in sacrificing perhaps his own children, or maybe it's the children of Israel, we're not sure, based on the text, but he was involved in child sacrifices. This, by the way, had been forbidden in the law. It says in Leviticus 18.21, the Mosaic law, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. Specifically, he calls out the God Molech, because Molech was worshipped by some of the surrounding nations. What they would do is they would build a tall metal statue to Molech. The arms of Molech would be open like this often. They would heat up the sack. They would heat up the metal in that, in that graven image until it was so red hot that, that it would take a life and they would take living babies and place in the arms of that God and call it worship. Despicable, detestable, unbelievable. Who would sacrifice children in any society? We would. We would. So before we pick up stones and throw at these folks, let me remind you that since 1973, we've had over 55 million abortions in America. 55 million. In fact, Jim, if you can put that clock up, this is a clock that will show you as I'm speaking the number of abortions taking place in America and worldwide right now. If you look at the left column in the United States today, since 8 o'clock this morning when we put this up, there have been 1,684 abortions and the meter keeps clicking. 
since Roe v. Wade, over 55 million abortions. If you go over here worldwide, 1,271,481,890, and it keeps clicking since 1980. Just since we have turned this on, today at 8 o'clock worldwide, there have been 16,869 abortions committed worldwide. Who would do something so despicable and detestable, and why? Why? I mean, when we look at the sacrifice of children, we have to remind ourselves that we live in a society, a culture, in a world that will not place babies typically in the arms of a piece of metal and call it worship. But we do live in a culture, a society, a nation that says we can do it as a form of contraception, we can do it as a matter of convenience, or we can do it as a matter of economics. Don't want another pregnancy, it's another mouth to feed, and don't want to fringe upon our lifestyle. We do it out of fear, we do it out of desperation, we do it out of misunderstanding God's word and his value for life. God is pro-life, God loves life, God gives life, God wants you to protect the unborn. C. Everett Koop, who was a Surgeon General of America, a pediatric surgeon, said this, in every abortion something living is killed. That is an indisputable biological fact, not a moral judgment. Gary, what are you saying? Ladies, if you've had an abortion in the past and have not grieved over that decision and confessed it as sin and been restored to God, I pray that today you will. And I do that at a broken heart because I know the pain that you have gone through. And I pray that if you've not come before God and confessed that for what it was and been restored to him, that today will be a day that you do that. If you are pregnant or a friend or a family member are pregnant and considering abortion, please don't do it. That baby is made in the image of God. It's a life. The Father does not want you to take that life. Contact me this week. We will either help you as a body or we will give that baby a home. We have numerous folks sitting in this worship service each hour who would love to have a baby. And we will help you in that process. Some of you have been down this road. You have grieved what you've done. You've dealt with the past. You've been forgiven and you walk with Jesus. I pray you'll comfort others with the comfort you've received. And our community is Hope Pregnancy Center. I've been on the advisory board for two decades plus now. And it's a great ministry. Some of our folks here are involved in volunteering. Some on staff there. And I pray it's a good ministry to reach out to women and to men who are involved in this process. Men, let me address you. Some of you forced an abortion. You paid for an abortion. You willingly sacrificed a son or a daughter that was yours. I pray that if you haven't dealt with that sin, that you'll deal with the sin of participation in an abortion. What type of people would do that? I I don't say this out of condemnation. I say it with a broken heart, and I say seek the forgiveness from God because he is a forgiving father. He's a forgiving father. By the way, this is contrary to what you heard in debates the other night. You know, it was a classic example of what I preached on a few weeks ago. There is no sacred secular divide. What the word of God says is the way we should live our lives. It impacts everything about us. It impacts our work. It impacts every area of life, the arts, medicine, the sciences, education. It impacts what we believe about life itself. The first reason why the nation of Israel is in such a downward spiral is because their king not only worshipped false gods, but their king was involved in child sacrifice. The second reason is because he was seeking after false security. After false security. See, he's in the midst of a dilemma. The dilemma is this. If you look at verse 16, it says, At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. 
So, so here is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he's got a problem. The problem is, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 28, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captive. The Philistines had also invaded the cities. And here's his problem. He's being attacked from every side. If you look at the map in front of you again, it says that the Edomites are coming after him. The Edomites are down here. If you look at them, the Philistines are over here. He's getting attacked from the east. He's getting attacked from the west. A little earlier in the text, this verse I skipped, Israel has attacked him, and Syria, Damascus, has attacked him. And so he's attacked from the west. He's attacked from the east. He's attacked from the north. He's attacked from the far reaches of the north. Assyrians would be up here somewhere. And so he calls upon the king of this pagan nation to come and be his ally. That's the next problem. The next problem is you have a king of the nation of Israel who has at his disposal coming to the true God and seeking help from him, but instead of seeking help from the true God, he goes and he forms an alliance, as verse 16 says, with the Assyrian king. Now, I'm going to tell you, that doesn't work well. When you turn to pagans to help you with things, it doesn't work well. We've talked about this several times in this series, talking about being equally yoked. We've talked about seeking to do things ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, I used the illustration saying, this is an example when someone says, God, you can take a break. I've got this one. And that's basically what Ahaz is doing. God, I'm going to do this rather than turning to you. I, I'm going to form this line. Say, Gary, how do you know that? I know that because Isaiah the prophet spoke about this. You see, when, when the, all the attacks were coming, Isaiah the prophet says, you need to turn to and trust in God. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, a sign that you'll be victorious, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz the king said, I will not ask. He says, I'm not going to turn to and trust in God. I'm going to form this alliance with this powerful king, and I I know that if I have this alliance, and everything will work out militarily, it will be okay. And so rather than turning to God, when God sends him specific word through the prophet Isaiah and says, ask me for a sign, he says, I will not ask and I will not put you to a test. Well, read, not put you to a test. At first we think, well, that's mighty noble of him. The reality of it, what he's saying is, I would rather do things my way. And he doesn't turn to and trust in God. He's trusting in the security of an alliance with a pagan king. So how'd that work out for you, Ahaz? Look at verse 20. So Tiglath-Pilnasier, how's that for naming a king? His mama hung a title on him, didn't she? So Tiglath-Pilnasier, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. He forms an alliance with the king, but the king turns on him. And what happens is, you can look at the parallel passage in Second Kings chapter 16, and what happens in the parallel passage is, he says, I will come, but only if you give me money. And so he turned on him, and he said, yeah, I'm going to come and help you, but this is going to cost you. In fact, in Second Kings 16, it says he took the utensils of the temple, and he, he brought them to the king, really as, as homage to him, so he would be his ally. In fact, if you go down to verse 21, it says, Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord, out of the palace of the king, out of the princes, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. <coughs> let me let you know a secret. When we try and do things our way instead of God's way, it doesn't turn out too good. And that's what's happening here. 
He's saying, God, I'm just going to take control here and I'm going to do things the way I want to do it, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I'm going to accomplish these things in my own way rather than trusting you and the whole thing backfires and rather than having security, he's got a mess. False worship, false security, false hope. He's got false hope. What do you mean by that, Gary? Well, if you drop down to verse 21, it says... For he, Ahaz, sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. Why would he sacrifice to the gods of Damascus, of Syria? Why would he do that? Because the gods of the kings of Aram, that's the the, the area of Syria, helped them. And so he said, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. The reason he turned to these false gods is he said the Syrian army has been successful and the Syrian army has gods and if their gods have made them successful, then I will worship their gods and their gods will make me successful. And so rather than following the true God, he began to look at the success and the the so-called blessings of others and he said, well, I might as well follow their gods because my God is not doing what I'm asking him to do. So I'm going to bow my knee and worship their gods. And so it says very clearly in verse 23, he sacrificed, that is, he worshiped to their gods. Now, as we've studied the kings, one of the questions I hope that you're asking in your mind over and over is why? Why? Why would these people begin to worship these false gods? Why would a king who has God saying, turn to me, trust in me, ask me, why would they turn to, what are the lures out there? Why? Why? Well, I think the first reason is what you just see in that verse. The first reason is they looked at other nations, saw success at times, and they said, well, if they are successful, it's their gods that are making them successful. We want to be successful, so we'll worship their gods. Our gods not giving us what we want, so we'll take their gods on. I don't think they necessarily rejected Jehovah all the time. They just added the, all these pantheon of gods to him. But the reality is if you trust other gods and God, you're not trusting true God at all. Second reason. The influence of the surrounding cultures. Everybody worshipped all these other gods. And in Deuteronomy 7, God had very clearly said, if you don't destroy the people in the land, you're going to marry their daughters. And when you marry their daughters, you're going to worship their gods. And that's what's happened. A third reason. It's an issue of the heart. Spiritual life in Israel had become legalism, keeping the law. It was not a heart change. There was no heart change. And when your heart becomes rule-keeping and your heart becomes about getting success or blessing from God rather than loving and casting yourself on him, your heart, too, will become stale. It will become hardened. And it can be attracted to idols. No, Gary, I, I, I don't have any idols. <laughs> I mean, we don't have any graven images in our house, and we don't bow down to anything other than, you know, we don't have any idols. In our staff meeting this week, Chase Bowers, our missions pastor, was up here earlier, said uh, he'd heard this definition of, or came up with it, I forget which, of an idol. An idol is that which captures our mind's attention and our heart's affection. What captures your mind's attention all the time? What do you think about all the time? That can become your idol. What what is your heart so set on that if you don't have it, you can't live? What is it? I I was thinking about this this week as I'm preparing this and 
said, you know, not many of us have graven images or metal or wooden statues at home that we bow down to, but we have idols. We have the idol of image in our culture. That is how we are perceived by other people. And so we buy certain clothes and dress certain ways and live in certain houses and certain communities and we, we, we whatever we project. We, we, our image is important. The way our kids behave, we're more concerned about what people think of us because of what our kids are doing. We join gyms and we run and we exercise because we want a body image that's just right because we want to project a certain image. We want a certain body shape. I remind you that round is also a shape. We want to look a certain way. That can become an idol. I've got an idol in my pocket. Here it is right there. There's an idol. Hey, you want to punish a teenager? You know the best thing? You know the greatest way to punish a teenager right now? You tell me, guys. I've got a bunch of teenagers out there. You take away their phone. That's like taking away their life. The, 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 I think it was Newsweek, the headline, when the new uh, iPhone 5 came out a couple of weeks ago. The headline says they can't live without it. And they interviewed several people who had spent two nights on the streets of New York City so that they could be first in line to get an iPhone 5. They can't live without it. And before we throw rocks at our teenagers, I remind you that many of you have gotten in your car, you start to drive away from home, you look in your purse, it's not there, you look in the, in the drink holder, it's not there, you feel in your pockets and it's not there, and so you may be 30 minutes outside of town and you're in a panic, and so you turn around and go home because you can't live without it. And so we worship this, which is exactly what Steve Jobs wanted us to do. What do you think about all the time? Guys my age, you know, I'll be 58 in a couple of weeks. Actually, we don't go to Ukraine until a few weeks out, and I have a birthday then. And guys my age, you know what they talk about? Think about retirement accounts, investments. Will I have enough to retire? They hop online four or five times a day a week to see, four or five times a day to see how their investments are doing. They're more concerned about who's going to be president because of what's going to happen to the economy and their retirement funds than they are anything else. That's an idol. College football. I love college football. I have to check myself all the time. It can become an idol. Become an idol. When your team's bad, it's a lot easier for it not to be an idol. (laughs) So into this culture, the godly prophet Micah speaks. He speaks. He says, if you're going to play with God, you're going to pay. Sin has consequences. And he speaks and he warns them of impending judgment. And so if you go to the book of Micah, the very first chapter, Micah speaks into the time of Ahaz. And he says, I've got a word. It begins in verse 1. The word of of the Lord which came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I'll preach on Hezekiah next week. And he says, I'm coming to warn you. It's a revelation about coming judgment. He says, hear, O people, verse 2, of all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, let the Lord be a witness against you. It's a courtroom scene. And he says in verse 5, all of this is for the rebellion of Jacob, the sins of the house of Israel. The rebellion of Jacob is not in Samaria. The rebellion of Judah is it not in Jerusalem. And he begins to mourn. God is mourning. It's a picture of God mourning. And he says in verse 7, all of the idols will be smashed. All of the earnings will be burned with fire. All the images I'll make desolate. He says, destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. Be warned. It's coming. You've 
walked in sin long enough, God is going to bring judgment upon you because of that sin. There's a picture of, of, of mourning beginning in verse 8. He says, because of this, I must lament and wail. I'm going to go barefoot. I'm going to go naked. I'll lament like jackals. The sign of mourning is a shaving a head. So all the way in verse 16, it says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. I love that verse. <laughs> but look how he ends that verse, verse 16. Because you're going to go into exile. He says, here's the warning. Because of your sin, you're going to pay the consequence of your sinful behavior. And the consequence is going to be you and your kids are going to be taken out of your house. You're going to be taken out of your land. You're going to be taken from everything that's familiar to you. And you're going to be in exile. And historically, we're going to see that very thing happen. The Babylonians, the Assyrians came. They captured the north. They captured the south. And the very words of Micah are fulfilled. God is judging the people because of their sin. When we think we can get away with it, all of a sudden God says, be warned, I'm telling you because of your sin judgment is coming why is judgment coming because you've turned away from god not only you but especially the leaders watch the italicized words in the verses in front of you the reason judgment is coming because the leaders of jacob the rulers of israel they don't embrace justice they hate good and love evil the reason for judgment is because can't click fast enough the prophets who lead my people, the prophets lead my people astray. Why is judgment coming? The leaders of Jacob, the rulers of Israel, the leaders judge for a bribe, the priests teach for a price, the prophets tell fortunes for money. He says, everybody that should be leading my people into a relationship with Jehovah instead are selling out. And you've got all this stuff happening because of sin. But God never leaves us there. God always says there's hope. And when you go to the last chapter of the book of Micah, Micah chapter 7, we read about hope. We read about hope. In spite of the sin of the people, in spite of all that's happened, it says in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. Micah 7, 19 He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou will cast all the sins into the depths of the sea. You'll give truth to Jacob, unchanging love to Abraham. You swore to our forefathers from the days of old. What Micah is saying is that in the midst of your desperation, you should have hope. In the midst of your desperation... You can have hope. In desperate times, never forget that God provides hope. Some of you are in desperate times. God provides hope. Some of you experience the consequences of your sins. God provides hope. Regardless of your situation, there's hope. About a month ago, I brought my friend Larry up here and interviewed him. And we talked about what God had done in his life and the changes that were there. The week after that, my friend Andrew came up and he shared with you how he was on the plane in the Hudson River that went down and, and how God had spared his life and the lives of all those up there and the work that God had done in his life since. When I was reading and, and preparing for this and thought about who is it that has been through desperate times but found hope in God, I thought about another one of my friends, Jeff. So would you welcome Jeff Lawyer on the stage with me this morning?
When I uh, first met Jeff, he showed up at uh, TBC 12, 15 years ago, I think it was. 15 years ago. And he was desperate. You were desperate. Why don't you tell him a little bit about that desperation? Uh, when I was a child, like a lot of people, I came from a very dysfunctional family, and in a very early age, my life started heading south. By the time I got out of high school, the only way that I could handle the pain and the anger that was in my life was through drugs and alcohol. And this progressed until the age of 27. When I turned 26, I just decided to check out. I quit work and I took all my money and I went on a 10-month alcohol and cocaine binge. And at the end of that 10 months, all I wanted to do was die. I just, I, it was really hard to live. You can have so much pain and anger and bitterness that, that you don't want to live anymore. And I found out a horrible reality. I would write that suicide note, and I would go out in my backyard, and I would put my pistol in my mouth, and I would put the, the, my finger on the trigger, and I couldn't pull it. I didn't have the courage to kill myself. So I was out of hope. I was doomed to living hell on earth every single day of my life. And uh, it was really, it was miserable. It was totally miserable. But something happened. Something happened. Uh, Jeff had a son. And when he had that son, he realized that uh, changes needed to be made. And he also had a persistent postman, too, who uh, kept inviting Temple Bible Church. So tell him what happened there. Well, in 1995, my son was born. And for only the second time in my life, I gave my heart to another person. Now, giving your heart or control to anybody, it always led to pain. Hoping, every time I hoped for something, I got slapped down and it just hurt more. But... I had this mailman that would come to my house, and he would say, we sure would like to see you at Temple Bible Church. Well, when my son was a year and a half old, it became apparent to me that my demons would affect his life. And so the only way that I knew how to protect him, I came up with this great plan that I would raise him as a Christian because all I knew about Christians is that they were always happy, and they all led perfect lives. In other words, <laughs> I didn't know a thing about Christians. But this mailman kept talking about Temple Bible Church, so I came down here. I said, let me talk to the pastor, and they said, which one? And I said, how many pastors does the church have? And they said, multiple. I said, the head honcho. And they sent me into Gary's office. Quite a conversation we had that first time, wasn't it? You know, I told Gary I was coming to church for my son, that I would put my son in his little Sunday school class, and while I was waiting for him, I would come into the auditorium. But I told him that there was no hope for me, that my life was the way that I was, that I was a hardcore atheist, that I didn't believe in this stuff, and I asked him, don't waste your time preaching to me. But the first week that I came to this church, and I put my son in Sunday school, and I came here in this auditorium, I heard the most powerful message of hope. But every time I had hoped, I just got hurt. And this message of hope had an attachment to it. You had to hope, but you had to give control of your life to Jesus Christ. And hoping and giving control of my life was a recipe for pain. 
But the message was so powerful that even on weekends when I didn't have my son, I kept coming back. And I came back to this church for four years hearing this message. And then one afternoon I went to Gary's office and I said, I want this so bad, why can't I accept this? And he said, because you don't want to give control of your life to anyone else. Well, of course not. That was the recipe for pain. And I went home that night and I thought about it. And I'd been willing to give control of my life to drugs since I was a young person, to alcohol. I was letting the pain and the anger and the bitterness affect every facet of my life. And yet, I didn't want to give control to somebody that said, hey, I can, I can make it all happen. I can give you a life. And the next morning I got up, and as I was walking across my bedroom floor, I fell on my knees, and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. When I got up off my knees that morning, I felt a peace that I have never felt before. But... Jesus never promised me a perfect life. He just said that if you fall, I will be there and I will help you up. And that as you go through this life, I'll be a shoulder to lean on. And if the dark clouds roll in, hang in there with me because the sunshine is coming. And he has fulfilled that promise to me for 11 years now. Amen. You know, when, when I first met Jeff, not too many people walking up and say, I want you to know I'm an atheist, I want my child to be saved, but I'm not interested. That's quite, that's quite a message. His son has come to Jesus. His son's a junior in high school now. Jeff is a, a work in progress as I'm a work in progress as you are. Jeff owned nightclubs and he's got a different business now. He got out of that because he was convicted about what he was doing. And so his life has been radically and dramatically changed. You come desperate today? Jesus says there's a message of hope for you. It's a message of hope that you're only going to find through him here. And for some of you, you need to come to grips with that. It is an issue of control. It's an issue of I will not relinquish myself to anyone, anybody, anywhere, anytime, because it's too risky. And Jesus says, I'll take whatever you've got, and I'll give you eternal hope and eternal life like you've never had before. And some of you know Jesus, but you've decided, I'm going to take a break from God for a while. I'm not getting what I want. You're like Ahaz. He worshipped other gods because he felt he wasn't getting what he wanted. And for some of you, you've been running from God because you've disappointed with God. The message of hope is right here. You turn to him and you trust in him and you hope in him. And some of you walk with Jesus, honor Jesus, love Jesus every day of your life. You need to pray for the rest of us that God would give us hope that's found in him and him alone. Father, we thank you for this powerful testimony of how Jesus changes lives. We thank you for the powerful testimony, the powerful testimony of Micah the prophet that judgment comes for those who won't trust in the living God. And so, Father, today I pray for our brothers and sisters who've walked away from you that they'll come back to you. I thank you for brothers and sisters who walk with you and encourage us. 
I pray for those who are not yet brothers and sisters that right now they would relinquish the control of their life, confess that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that they would allow you, Lord Jesus, to reign supreme in their life and they would accept the forgiveness that you can give them for their sins. Whatever category you fall in, I just pray that you'll walk with the Savior, know the Savior, and honor the Savior every day. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're